Hello and thank you for joining us. Welcome to Zooming In on Hate, a podcast series that brings together the brightest minds to figure out solutions to hate speech and disinformation. So we regularly speak to various voices from tech, civil society, law enforcement and policymakers to help us identify and analyse the latest social media trends. This podcast is part of the European Observatory of Online Hate, or EOOH for short. And in this edition, we will be delving into the Great Replacement Theory. So I'm Lydia Elkouri from TechScan. My name is Hannah Richter and the campaign manager at Dare to be Grey. It's really our pleasure to welcome Jakob Gould from ISD, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Jakob, thanks for joining us on Zooming In on Hate. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about the work that the Institute for Strategic Dialogue does and we'd love to know in particular about your role. Yeah, so the Institute for Strategic Dialogue or ISD is a counter-extremism organization that both researches and tries to combat extremism across the ideological spectrum. I am mainly part of the digital research team and so I have four Uh, several years now been uh, contributing to some of our work, trying to understand the far right online, trying to understand Islamist extremism, but then also to understand and and map and document some of the mute music that surrounds these these movements, even though things that maybe aren't quite extremism, that don't really hit the threshold for that, but that nevertheless kind of form part of these online environments like conspiracy theories, like hate speech on social media, as well as disinformation campaigns. So my work really thematically has been looking at some of these distinct trends and movements. And maybe just to add a word on how we do this, not just sort of what we're looking at, but how we do it, we combine really three pillars of of methodologies to do our research. It's A, we uh, access quantitative data through the um, APIs of different platforms to gather as much data and, and enable us to do cross-platform analysis of trends in extremist discourse online. We complement this with more qualitative observation of extremist communities, ethnographic digital research, if you will, to really understand the subcultures, to understand, to understand the latest memes that are popular, And then lastly, we have some people who do OSINT investigation, open source intelligence to understand some of the um, web infrastructure, to understand some of the uh, financial networks and mechanisms that are used to, 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 to fuel some of the activities of extremists online. And so these three quantitative research, qualitative ethnographic observations and then open source investigations, these are really the, the, that, that's our kind of ammunition to, to do this kind of work. Well, your work sounds really interesting, Jakob. And you were starting to talk about the online environment and, and the different trends that um, you've been seeing going on. So the situation online has quite changed sorry, uh, quite dramatically since the beginning of the pandemic. What would you say are the most significant changes that you've observed? Yeah, so I mean, the pandemic, and this applies to real life as much as the online life, of course, has brought quite a lot of uncertainty, economic uncertainty, social uncertainty, um, uncertainty in terms of the public health situation. Um, and I think it really has resulted, especially initially after the introduction of the the measures in March 2020, in a lot of uncertainty and a sense of loss of control, really. People felt very disempowered, uh, while at the same time being largely confined to their homes, spending a lot more time online. 
um, trying to make sense of the situation in which they were placed in. And one of the key things that we believe this has led to is an increased demand in conspiracy theories to make sense of the situation, to identify who's to blame for this crisis. Is it a maybe a hoax after all that serves um, entirely different motivations and the interests of, of powerful people? And really to try to make sense of the situation and explain it and understand what, what supposedly is really behind this crisis rather than, than sort of just, just accepting the, the quote-unquote official narrative. And so we really have seen, I think, a proliferation of conspiracy theories around the origins and nature of the virus, around the purpose of the measures, and about the kind of dangerousness and efficiency of, of the vaccines in particular. And since these were quite popular narratives, on that extremist groups were trying to capitalize on the uncertainty and on the increased demand for conspiracy theories and kind of hijack these emerging protest movements that manifested both in the online world, but then also soon after manifested an offline protest against the lockdown measures, against the supposed authoritarianism around COVID um, that people saw in these, these um, measures. And so what we've really been documenting for over two years now during the COVID crisis is that while there's some local differences and regional specifics, the movements in different countries actually look strikingly similar. They bring together a very wide variety of actors from traditional far-right movements to far-right uh, and right-wing populist parties to uh, conspiracy theories, adherents of, of, say, QAnon, to um, kind of spiritual New Age movements, people who are just kind of skeptical of, 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 of established scientific um, knowledge as well as medicine. And so really a very broad coalition of people who otherwise probably wouldn't have found together. And we really see these trends in, in the US, in Germany, in the Netherlands, and Canada. And so we've been publishing an entire series of reports to try to tease out some of the common elements uh, across different contexts. And maybe just to wrap this up, I mean, I think even now where we're in the situation where the measures are, you know, have either been rolled back, at least temporarily, let's see how this this, this develops. I think we, we nevertheless see that there, there's communities and networks that have been formed, that people have established the world we based around these conspiracy theories and that they're now applying this worldview to new situations. And so even if the lockdown measures may have disappeared, even if you know the QAnon conspiracy theory maybe has lost some of its appeal after Trump just exited office eventually, we see that these communities now find new grievances, new topics, and take the the models that they've developed during COVID and just, you know, copy and paste it, apply it to the monkeypox crisis, apply it to the war in Ukraine. And so really, I think what we're seeing there is, is that these conspiracy networks and ideologies have been established and are probably here to stay. Thanks, Jakob. And actually, yeah, it's interesting that you say that the, that they've moved to include um, new issues and, and we're actually seeing in the European Observatory of Online Hate that they're including abortion rights, that this is shifted into, into the new far-right narrative. But there's one, one particular element I, I, of um, 
conspiracy theory that we'd like to ask you about. We hear kind of consistently about the great replacement theory being central to far right ideology. Can you detail it for our listeners? Tell us exactly what it entails. Yep. So the great replacement is or the great replacement theory, if you want to call it that, is the belief that um white populations or you know in, in the context of Europe, white European populations are being replaced by a combination of high immigration, low birth rates among white Europeans. And so they look at, if you will, the, the changing demographics in many Western societies and identify this as an, a dystopian scenario, as a very concerning trend, um, and really as an existential threat to their in-group. It's not just the kind of change that needs to be managed and that, you know, has its upsides and, and, and you know, they, they view this as an existential threat to their identity. Um, and very often as a kind of conspiracy by political elites, by um, by the, the, the kind of rise of feminism. I mean, again, this is very often connected to the idea of, of low birth rates and, and women being encouraged to have, uh, supposedly being to have fewer kids and instead, you know, pursue your career. And so, so there's also a kind of desire to, to, to exert control over reproduction and, and limit reproductive rights. And that's actually how it connects to some of these debates around abortion. And there's different variations of it. I mean, some of them are more explicitly focused around uh, Muslims. Um, the origins of it certainly were... Um, in some variation, it's it's an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory because the allegation is it's really, you know, George Soros or the, the Jewish cabal that's behind this that is trying to lower birth rates by encouraging feminism or, or you know, movements for racial equality to undermine the homogeneity and strength of white populations and then replace them. So there's often this anti-Semitic twist to it, though not always. And it's really... The most recent variation of these demograph demographic horror scenarios that that we know from other contexts as well. It's it's, it's related, if not identical, to the Eurabia conspiracy theory that was established by Batyeol, um, which was really about the idea that say you know the supposedly left wing political establishment and radical Islam were were, were collaborating to turn Europe into a kind of uh, outpost post of Arabic states and we're trying to Islamize it, which we saw in movements like Pegida and the English Defense League and so on. And it's also related, I would say, to the white genocide theory, which is was sort of popularized in the US by, by the different neo-Nazi groups, but had also some appeal in in uh in sort of southern African contexts. Uh, in which there are minority white populations and, and sort of to, to kind of stoke fears of of uh, of whites becoming marginalized communities. And so and so the Great Replacement Theory is really, I think, like the latest iteration of, of these uh, horror scenarios related to, to demographic situations. Well, you're saying that really well there. Thank you so much. Um, and we've looked at now the different types of variations of it, but where would you say it really comes from? Perhaps this is going a little bit too far back and it's it's just a, a change over time, but is there anywhere that we can specifically say it stems from? 
No, so the great great replacement um, as a term originates with a um, French far right philosopher called um, uh, Camus, uh, Renaud Camus, who in two thousand eleven wrote a a book, Le Grand Replacement, the Great Replacement, and that's really where the kind of terminology comes around. As I said earlier, for, for Camus, this really was there was a great incompatibility of of uh, Muslims and non-Muslims in European society, so it had very much that angle to it. And it was then popularized over the years, if you will. It, it initially became quite popular among the identitarian movements and its different offshoots in different countries. Uh, Renaud Camus gave it, I believe in 2014, a presentation to Bloc Identitaire in France. Um, and the identitarian movement, which also exists in 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 Austria quite prominently in Germany, uh, again it originates in France, but but sort of has spread across different contexts and had, has almost established a sort of brand identity that's been taken up uh, in different Eastern European countries as well. And they're quite social media savvy younger far right activists who believe that in order to prepare the eventual overthrow of the political system and the replacement of, of liberal democracy, they really need to influence the cultural discourse uh, of our societies and kind of like shift the Overton window, the, the kind of window of the range of ideas and policies that are considered acceptable to shift that window to the right or to the far right, really, uh, especially on, on, on immigration, on, on identity. Uh, on these kind of issues. Uh, and so they really took this up, used social media to to push these ideas and began to influence further and further audiences. And I think the the, the kind of mainstreaming or sort of the amplification of, of the Great Replacement then really was aided by the 2015 refugee crisis and some of the popular backlash against that. It was aided by the rise of the alt-right in the US who were influenced by some of these French far-right philosophers. I mean, we, we, we heard it during the 2017 Charlottesville demonstrations. I mean, you will not replace us, or, you know, Jews will not replace us. And there were other sort of often young social media influencers like Lauren Southern, who sort of started referencing the great replacement theory. And so it really just began to, like, reach broader audiences, reach protest movements. Um, it eventually became amplified by far-right politicians in, in different parties in Europe and the, in the US, and, but increasingly also began to reach the mainstream. I mean, like during the French elections earlier this year, we even heard uh, Valérie Pécresse, you know, center-right politician, referenced the Great Replacement Theory. Um, in the US, Tucker Carlson on Fox News, with his very large audience, has, has begun to, to use this in the context of the situation at the US southern border. Uh, and so I think this is really the process how this, you know, it started with Renaud Camus, like a relatively obscure, you'd think, French philosopher, and really has reached large audiences and mainstream political discourse. It's interesting that it's it's relatively new as as conspiracy theories go. Um, you've touched on this a little bit, Jacob, but I wonder if we could dig a bit deeper into who who it actually affects, what different groups or individuals are targeted by the Great Replacement Theory? Yeah, so I mean, it, it depends a bit on the specific iteration of it, but I mean, it, it always targets migrants, really. Uh, it very often targets Muslims specifically. 
in the anti-Semitic versions of it, it, it targets Jews. But I think this is maybe a little bit under-noticed sometimes. It, it really is also about, it's a kind of backlash against feminism, and it is very much about birth rates and, and the desire to control female sexuality and reproduction and reproductive rights. So it very much targets uh, women as well. And it, it does this through these kind of you know social media campaigns and so, but also by trying to influence broader political discourse and ideally policy in the end. I mean, like they, 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 I don't think these people want to stay in their little corner. Like they, they do want to make policy uh, towards their ideology. I think it's probably a, a topic for a completely different podcast if we were to get into abortion uh, right now. But I think it's really interesting to to see the overlap um, that the Great Replacement Theory has with like with abortion, what, everything that is going on at the moment in in the US with Roe v. Wade. Um, but moving on from from who it specifically affects, why is it dangerous? Right. Um, I mean, really does a few things that are dangerous. So, so A, it inspires quite a lot of violent attacks. I mean, the Pittsburgh shooting 2018, the attacker before committing his attack posted on, on Gap, a sort of fringe, uh, relatively fringe social media platform popular among, among the far right, that Jewish organizations were bringing in quote-unquote invaders through the southern border and that therefore he he sort of needed to step in and, you know, the consequence was that he went into a synagogue and 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 uh, started killing people. The um, Christchurch attack in two thousand nineteen was inspired by the Great Replacement. The manifesto of the perpetrator uh, was in fact titled "The Great Replacement." Um, this, as we know, in the meantime, has inspired quite a few copycat attacks, if you will, that often reference Great Replacement ideology as well in Poway in El Paso. Uh, in Halle in Germany, in uh, Buffalo most recently. So there's quite a few just terrorist attacks that have been inspired by Great Replacement theory. Um, it similarly, I think, can be dangerous because it amplifies protest for far-right parties and protest movements that seek to uh, limit the rights of, of, uh, of migrants, of ethnic and religious minority communities, uh, of women. Um, so I think it can have quite negative impacts due to the consequences in the political arena. And I mean, ultimately, it's, it's really kind of a threat to, 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 to human rights. I mean, the, the response that some of the movements who talk about the great replacement theory demand is really remigration. I mean, this used to be a kind of campaign slogan of the identitarian movement. Um, and I mean, it, it, it sounds a bit abstract, remigration, but I mean, really what they envision is, is to, to increase the ethnic homogeneity of, of Western countries. And I mean, remigration in that sense is really a kind of call for a, you know, large scale population transfer, I mean, like an ethnic cleansing. It, it, it's really sort of like completely clashes with the most idea of human rights and and so it's it is the ultimate consequence of or the ultimate aim of this whole ideology i think is is just like a very very drastic now you've um you've kind of hit on the crux of what to do about conspiracy theories or why conspiracy theories are dangerous because we're talking about how offline and online worlds 
come together. And I wonder what your thoughts about that are more broadly, Jacob. What 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 do you see and and what are the biggest concerns in relation to online offline worlds colliding? Yeah, I mean, it, it has become increasingly difficult to even, like, neatly separate the two. I mean, people have been starting to speak about, like, the post-digital age, where, where again, like, the, the, the distinction between becomes increasingly blurry. And, I mean, if you look at some of the protests that we were seeing around the COVID-19 restrictions, but also the kind of, like, far-right uh, protests um, in, in reaction to the migration crisis, like, some of these alliances may seem very strange like why why do certain groups sort of march with each other what really brings them together they seem quite different from each other it makes quite a lot of sense if you look at the online landscape and you look at platforms like telegram and the kind of like groups that it brings together how it enables people to network how it enables people to quickly join uh different channels uh consume content and ideas from from different direction and so i think there's a you know, it's it's maybe not like an easy causal relationship, but there's there's a striking correspondence between the two worlds, and I think it would be a folly to assume that you can have this this hateful discourse and these conspiracy theories that ultimately point towards ethnic cleansing and just assume that it'll sort of stay in its corner and it'll just remain in the online world and never have a negative impact in the offline world. And can I take it one step forward? even further Jacob I mean do do you think the great replacement can equal all-out war does it mean is it an existential threat um it's trying to be I mean like its adherents are certainly I, I think do have just quite fundamentally have ideas that are quite fundamentally opposed to to open liberal society that support democracy and and respect human rights i mean they, they it is a substantial fairly substantial philosophical view that's that's opposed to these kind of things and um yeah no the the, the great replacement theory i think at its core just just really collides with these types of values that i think we we would be supportive of so we've spoken about how how bad it is how dangerous it is and and who it can affect but what are we doing to to combat it or how can we combat it what's isd doing what can our listeners do how can we help yeah so i mean what yeah that's two questions so i mean what 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 are we doing currently i mean there have been some reactions by by different tech platforms i mean like quite a lot of the identitarian Groups have been banned, at least on on major social media platforms. Um, there have been other things. I mean, like like payment providers, like re- removing access to their services and so on. So there's there, there's been some of of this on the kind of trying to limit the audience. And I wouldn't even be too dismissive of that. I mean, like these these kind of groups that are trying to inter- influence the cultural debate and trying to push their ideas into the mainstream. That's quite difficult to do if you're only speaking to the people who are already in your circle. So, so I mean, limiting their their audience and limiting their reach, I do do think is is like part of the solution. Um, in some countries, including in France, like certain groups have even been dissolved. Um, again, I think that that can impose 
costs, just opportunity costs, logistical costs, costs of time and capacity. So, so again, this this can be a solution, but I think ultimately it isn't just a group challenge. It's it's a narrative. It's an ideology. It proliferates on social media. It it, it doesn't really need fixed organizational structures to 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 spread. Um, so I think kind of going beyond these 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 um, approaches where you're trying to to ban organizations or limit people's read on on social media, it is I think still necessary um, to make a kind of intellectual or or moral case for for why these people are wrong about. Uh, migration in the first place. I mean, there's, again, the great replacement theory is quite extreme, but, I mean, it taps into a kind of wider discontent around migration and the kind of speed and rates of migration by people that wouldn't support the great replacement theory, but that nevertheless have certain anxieties around it. And I do fear that kind of centrist and liberal and, and you know, mainstream politics has dropped the ball a little bit in relation to to being proactive in these debates and has just been too reactive to to some of these anxieties that have expressed in popular movements and so and has really almost stopped making the case for why immigration could be a positive force and why the shifts in demographies uh might be necessary but could also just just um lead to better and more inclusive societies and I think this is quite necessary to make this case because it's unlikely, I believe, that migration will will sort of drastically be reduced, especially in the context of of climate change, um, especially in the context of aging societies in the West. Um, I think, therefore, it is just necessary that that there's a broader political discourse that really like makes the case um, for for some of these um, pro immigration policies. Uh, in order to kind of prov- kind of cut off the fuel that fuels these anxieties that can lead people towards great replacement ideology and similar things. Well, thank you so much for that, Jakob. So we have been speaking to Yapol Gul, Senior Manager of Policy and Research from the Institute of Strategic Dialogue. Um, thank you so much for all of your incredible insights of the great, great replacement theory. Yeah, thank you again so much for having me. And uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us for this special episode of Zooming In on Hate. So please make sure to subscribe to our mailing list, which is www.eooh.eu. And we'll let you know about upcoming episodes of Zooming In on Hate and a wide variety of articles, blogs and insights from the work that we're doing on combating hate speech online. Uh, we're also on Twitter and LinkedIn. Find us there, please, eoh.eu. And a special shout out to our funder, the European Commission's Rights, Equality and Citizenship Programme by DG Justice. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs>